today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. The truth is, is your metabolism is just adapting to stimulus based on your choices, your environment, your health history, past decisions. And that could be for something like for me, there were sort of acute events that impacted what was going on metabolically, which could be the result of an injury or trauma. But you can also have more gradual changes that happen as a result of your diet, your exercise, environment. There's so many other things that play into it. So really, we want to think of your metabolism as malleable or adaptive, which is also very helpful for individuals because you can have a little bit more of a growth mindset around it as opposed to, oh, it's broken. It's not going to change. It is the way that it is. It's very fixed. When in reality, we have the ability to influence it Hello, hello, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking all about your metabolism with Sam Miller, health and fitness coach and masters in nutrition. In fact, he has a great book titled Metabolism Made Simple, Making Sense of Nutrition to Transform Metabolic Health. He understands that the word metabolism gets thrown around a lot. So we dove headfirst into the subject. Before we get started though, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast, and that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com and create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Sam Miller, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am really excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to dive in on all things metabolism because you are quite an expert. You have written a book and honestly, metabolism, kind of like hormones, you know, people know what they say. I have a hormone problem, but they don't actually know what that means. They will commonly say, I think my metabolism is broken, but they don't really know what that means either. So we're going to deep dive into all those questions that people have when they throw around the word metabolism. But before we do that, for those who don't know you and don't follow you on social media, give us a little background of who you are and how you got into this and what you stand for. Sure. So I've been in the health and fitness space and predominantly a little bit more trending towards the nutrition and metabolism side for over 15 years now. Wrote a book recently that came out in November 2022 that's called Metabolism Made Simple. And my focus in terms of what I noticed in the industry was you would have your medical providers on one side who would speak largely medical language and be focused on treating certain conditions. Then on the other side, you would have kind of your health and fitness coach or maybe your nutrition coach or someone who knows about macros, right? And this gray area in between, it was like, okay, well, we need lifestyle medicine essentially to address a lot of problems. And that's usually facilitated by health and wellness related behaviors and practices and things that you may actually need a coach for. And then on the other side, it's like, well, we still may need some sort of acute intervention on the medical side, but a lot of people don't necessarily use the information from one side to inform their decisions on the other, right? So having a better understanding of hormones and metabolism, you could make better nutrition decisions, better lifestyle decisions based on your current hormonal status or your current metabolic status. I think the same thing can be said in the other direction. So really, rather than taking this 
hard stance kind of one way or the other, I found this, okay, there's this gray area, there's this middle ground, and no one's really integrating the two concepts when in order to be as healthy as possible, or if you have any sort of goals in terms of your body composition, or you want to perform better and you're an athlete, you really have to consider both sides because otherwise you're missing a huge part of the equation. And I think that's why a lot of times people are spinning their wheels or they're very frustrated is they make these surface level training or nutrition decisions and they don't understand how it impacts their metabolism, how it impacts their hormones, or they're so focused on, like you said, oh, I have a metabolism problem, I have a hormone problem, but they don't understand that, hey, my sleep, my lifestyle, my nutrition, my training is going to influence my hormones. And so it's kind of, they have to interact together. It's not a conversation that we have in isolation. And so that's really where I became most fascinated just because of my own personal health journey. So I had a pretty significant TBI at a young age, so concussion that impacted my endocrine status. So even though I was already into the nutrition, the personal training, health coaching, I decided to go down the endocrinology rabbit hole, certainly helped that I had a lot of access to different practitioners at the time, sought out different mentors who are a little bit more on what we know as like the functional medicine side of things today. And that's kind of where I ultimately began to refine my approach in terms of how do we explain this to people where we can pull from some of the best aspects of understanding the endocrine system, understanding functional medicine and functional health, integrative health, but then looking at the other side of like, well, we still have to execute certain behaviors every day to be as healthy as possible. And that's really a lot of times where we're speaking about nutrition or exercise. And so that's pretty much my focus in terms of my platform and largely now do a lot of continuing education for other health professionals and have content platform as well, where I speak a lot about these different topics on my podcast in addition to the book that just came out. So let's start with the very first most basic question. People say, what is a metabolism? Sam, what is a metabolism? What do we mean when people say that? So I think of it as like a miser of both stress and energy or kind of a regulator of stress and energy. So we obviously eat food that's energy containing and that food is sort of you know, provides a bit of instructions for our metabolism in terms of what it's doing there. And then stress also plays a role because obviously that can impact our day-to-day decisions, both in terms of our food choices, but maybe whether we feel like exercising or what time we go to sleep. So you really can't have the conversation of one without the other. But simply put, I would just think of it as, hey, it's really trying to account for and compute these two variables And so we're basically constantly in this state, our body, whether we sort of think about it or not, is like, regardless of whether you got labs or a Dutch test or anything like that, your body is taking inventory of those daily decisions. How much food is available in my environment? How much stress is here? And then it responds accordingly. And so that's really when we're thinking about your sort of metabolism or metabolic status quo, largely a byproduct of your health history, as well as the current choices that you're making in your life. And actually, a lot of people, of course, you'll see it thrown around. My patients used to come in and say it all the time. I will see it lamented upon in my DMs or my comments of, I was born with a slow metabolism, or it's so unfair. My partner has a fast metabolism. Mine must be broken. What do they really mean when they're using those words, quote unquote, slow or fast or, or broken? And is that true? Yeah. So we've all sort of heard that dating back to probably grade school, where if we had that (laughs) friend who maybe just didn't put on weight or they could eat whatever they wanted, it seemed like they were maybe a little bit more resistant to weight gain. And so they stayed on the thinner side or maybe they were more petite. So it's very natural to throw those terms around when in reality, there were probably other variables that impacted their body weight, maybe exercise activity or non-exercise activity. Maybe they 
fidget a lot and they just move around all the time. Some people are just very hyperactive and that can also influence their overall energy expenditure, right? So when you hear people talk about calories in the health and fitness space, really we're just talking about a unit or measurement of energy, similar to how if you were to look at distance, we might talk about yards or miles to sort of quantify that. So when people talk about having a slow or fast metabolism or Sometimes you even hear people, they get very frustrated, they're like, my metabolism's broken. The truth is, is your metabolism is just adapting to stimulus. So based on your choices, your environment, your health history, past decisions, and that could be sort of for something like for me, there were sort of acute events that impacted what was going on metabolically, which could be the result of an injury or trauma. But you can also have more gradual changes that happen as a result of your diet, your exercise, environment. There's so many other things that play into it. So really, we want to think of your metabolism as malleable or adaptive, which is also very helpful for individuals because you can have a little bit more of a growth mindset around it as opposed to, oh, it's broken. It's not going to change. It is the way that it is. It's very fixed. When in reality, we have the ability to influence it. We actually have a large responsibility when it comes to our metabolic health. And so I think sometimes when we sort of place blame or label our metabolism as slow or fast or broken, truth is it's adapted to whatever we've sort of been signaling it to do. Now, there might be times where we need to take some form of corrective action to optimize things from a hormonal perspective and get things back on track. But usually when that happens, and I know you've seen this, Dr. Jones is like, people are stressed out or there's some sort of major life event or there's some chaos going on. And so it leads us to this place where maybe things aren't optimized metabolically or we're going through a major life change, maybe perimenopause or something. And so we're seeing changes in the state of our metabolism. But in reality, we do have control there and it is still under the influence of our choices and daily actions, barring like a chronic condition or some sort of very significant diagnosis that's probably beyond the scope of what we'll talk about in today's podcast. And I love that you say all that because I think you're right. I think a lot of people place slow metabolism or broken metabolism. It is what it is. This is what I have. Not realizing, I love that you said a growth mindset, that actually it is influenced by things that are honestly, often free, cheap, and easy to help course correct over time. Now it's not an overnight fix. If you and I had a magic pill, we would for just give it out. I tell people I wouldn't gatekeep if I had a magic pill for metabolism or any of these health things that we talk about on this podcast, but we don't. So if it's been 20, 30 years of stress and poor sleep and poor nutrition and lack of exercise and traumas, big T's, little T's, it's going to take some time to help heal and reverse that. But I love that you say that to absolutely give people hope. And actually, one of the things I want to bring up or ask you is that paper came out saying that your metabolism doesn't, quote, slow down at all, maybe until later than life, which sure brought out a lot of fighting out on social media. Do you find or what did you think of when you see things like that, when people go, well, I'm just 60 and it's natural for my metabolism to slow down? Male or female doesn't seem to matter. And people really do that at any age. So I just want to clarify, I think, the issue is when hormones and metabolism become the scapegoat, we sort of take the focus and responsibility away in terms of self-care, right? So getting sunlight, going for a walk, getting to sleep on time, we still have a responsibility there. Now, maybe there are some things that aren't 100% going your way and you need some support or you need a practitioner to help you. And that's totally fine. That happens to the best of us at different crossroads in our life. I think it's just having ownership over that journey and not turning these words like hormones and metabolism into some sort of scapegoat there. In terms of the age consideration, I think what we have to remember is a lot of folks have changes in terms of their work. Maybe they're retired, maybe they're less active, maybe they're not pursuing recreational activity, exercise, or sports like they were previously. Maybe folks have kids who have left the house and so they're not like chasing children around and going to soccer practice and all these different things. So 
I think there are variables, possibly even confounding variables related to lifestyle change that would impact what's going on with your metabolic rate and TDEE. And a key conversation there is really isolating this and thinking about if there's an individual who's active and can maintain muscle throughout their lifespan and make good nutritional decisions, they're probably going to stay pretty close or at least kind of thwart any changes as much as they can kind of mitigate that metabolic downregulation. But I think the problem is if people become more sedentary, they lose muscle, if they don't realize kind of the compounding effect of nutrition changes in their life, or maybe they eat differently because they're not preparing food for a family anymore. So they're not having family dinner. It's just like, I'm kind of grabbing food. And all of a sudden you've unintentionally changed your diet. You've unintentionally changed your activity level. And then if you maybe just don't have the zeal for exercise like you used to, now all of a sudden, maybe you're not preserving as much muscle mass. And now we've just done three or four things that are not optimal metabolically for us. And then we wonder why, okay, I've gained some body fat. I don't feel as confident as I used to, or my body composition isn't as good. So if you can isolate those variables, and there are individuals where they're doing most of those things correctly, they may just need a slightly different approach later in life than what you did when you were 24 may not be the best for you when you're 42. So Part of it is just having the conversation of, am I doing what's optimal for me right now? But also really auditing and having an honest conversation of like, yeah, did I actually start to engage in these different patterns and behaviors that are completely different than what I was doing before that have maybe kind of helped kind of nudge me into this situation? Yeah. And especially, I love that you said the age thing too, because that's an area that I talk about a lot. And being in the hormonal realm, there's not a lot of education as for females, when we were younger around, hey, when you do hit your 40s, 50s and beyond, it's not going to change as easily as it was when you were in your 20s and 30s. And I would have so many women come in and say, nothing has changed. I haven't changed my diet. I haven't changed my exercise pattern. And yet I've my body composition has changed. I've put on 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds. What happened? I'm like, oh, you had an entire hormone shift. You are perimenopausal or menopausal. It affects your metabolic health changes and none of these conversations are ever held. We don't, with good reason, we don't talk about these in health class in middle school and high school because nobody cares about perimenopause and menopause when you're 16 or 14 or... Yeah, well, even the same thing with <laughs> menstrual cycle health, right? It's like yes. no one really teaches you. You don't get like a blueprint for, hey, this is what's going on all the time. Maybe track your body temperature. This yes. is how to have self-awareness around these things. And we're not necessarily equipped with the tools. And so it kind of feels like you're going in blindfolded to certain situations. And I know you and I have had this conversation around hormonal birth control, but I think it's very similar for women experiencing perimenopause is there's not this great sort of pre-prep or conversation or frame for here's kind of what to expect and here's why a different approach might be needed or here's a way to at least sort of brace against some of the unfavorable changes so you can maintain things as much as possible. So what I've noticed, especially in that age group, is maybe the high intensity exercise that you were doing before, maybe your recovery changes to where you're not necessarily going about it at that same rate or the length at which you might be able to diet plays a role. But I would say one key conversation that's often skipped with this population is when we think of women who are now in perimenopause or menopause, the nutritional advice and exercise advice that was available for these women when they were in their formative years is very, very different than what's present in today's culture, as well as the access to information with social media. So if you think about it, like if we rewind to the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, we had things like SlimFast was like still super popular, oh right? So it's like yes. our default from like a nutritional programming and education perspective was totally different. It wasn't a conversation of, hey, eat your protein and focus on micronutrients and these are all the, and gut health and all these things. It was like, no, this is this 
quick fix. You can go buy it at the store. So a lot of times for that population, I really focus on like nutritional re-education and kind of that conversation so we can emphasize certain priorities, but also creating a little bit of balance to account for the hormonal changes. So for example, in menopause, and I'm sure you've covered this on past podcasts for root cause medicine, is we see that elevated insulin, cortisol starts to climb, progesterone's dropping, estrogen can kind of yin and yang and kind of wave a little bit before it ultimately starts to drop. Testosterone concentrations are coming down and we kind of shift to more of that. Mainly our source of androgens is going to be from the adrenals during menopause. So now all of a sudden we have less testosterone, which kind of helps thwart the accrual of body fat and also helps in terms of muscle mass. We have less progesterone, which is kind of calming and great in so many ways and sensitizing the body in terms of estrogen receptors to estrogen and all that good stuff. And so we have less of these key hormones. And so we're a little bit more stress reactive in a way. And then if you're continuing to do all of this high intensity training and you're not necessarily engaging in the right nutritional practices, you're creating a little bit of a chaotic recipe for your body. So what I tend to notice is that some women in that range do really, really well, where it's just like getting on a solid walking program, some resistance training, which is great for osteoporosis and maintaining bone density. So resistance training a few days a week, walking, like honestly more steps, especially if they're retired because they have a little bit more free time. So it's like, get out, go for a walk, get outside, get as many steps in as you can. And within reason, you don't need to spend your whole entire day walking, but ramping it up relative to maybe where it was before. And now all of a sudden, we're creating this environment where we can kind of evaluate the status quo in terms of how you're responding, but taking into account, hey, if we have maybe some blood sugar dysregulation because of the hormonal changes present, if we have less reproductive hormones, sleep is compromised, like maybe going to that high intensity workout class or boot camp with your friends seven times a week isn't doing you the same favors it was as like 10 years ago. So a lot of times that's what the conversation looks like. It's not that we're not exercising or that we're not going to make any dietary changes. It's just accounting for the hormonal milieu that exists during perimenopause and then kind of working around that. What about the argument around all of weight loss or gain is around calories in or calories out and that's it? Yeah. So it's funny. I just recorded a video on this yesterday. <laughs> yes. I am a big proponent of the conversation online and social media is very much calories versus hormones, when in reality, it's calories and hormones. Yes. So when we consume food, calories, that both the quantity of the calories, the type of the calories, the spacing of the calories, the quantity of energy coming into the system will impact the system from a hormonal perspective. Think of something as basic as insulin resistance. We're seeing essentially a, we're reaching this point where we're struggling to pull energy through the system. So if we're following a standard American diet, we're eating very poorly. A lot of times that is very calorically dense, but not very micronutrient dense. That will impact our hormones. I use the example of like, if we had a factory and let's say you were making supplement of some kind or protein of some kind, we have the raw materials. That's like the energy coming in. But inside your factory, if your workers aren't happy, your systems aren't well-structured, your machinery's not online, you're not inspecting that machinery, there's no communication between the workers, that's kind of going to be chaotic. And you could have everything optimized in terms of the supply chain of the raw powder coming in for the supplement. But if you don't have the factory on point, then that's a problem too, right? So calories and hormones have to work together synergistically in any sort of transformation. So for folks who say, oh, it's only hormones, which would be more of probably like early 2000s when we had the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, we know that just total quantity of energy is a driver of adiposity, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. There's a lot of issues there. So we know that energy impacts our hormones, but also our hormones are going to impact a couple things, which is everything from hunger and cravings and blood sugar regulation to when you want that next meal, both the hedonic and homeostatic eating systems in terms of the food decisions we're making on a day-to-day -day basis. And then on top of that, we have things like thyroid, 
which are going to play a role in total daily energy expenditure and the energy output. So we really have to account for both. That is both energy and that stress part, which really a lot of times begins to be a conversation around hormones. So instead of calories versus hormones, we should really say, okay, it's calories and hormones if you're trying to optimize your overall body composition or you want to feel better, you want to have better quality of life. Because if we are only looking at total energy, we're missing so many things when it comes to our quality of life, our biofeedback, and our lab markers too, right? Obviously, you're a big proponent of testing and things of that nature. It's like, well, I could consume a similar diet from a caloric perspective, but depending on the micronutrient density, so vitamins and minerals, basically, I could have very different health status depending on different ratios of things coming in and what my body responds to best. So when you have the weight loss conversation, I do think it's important to account for your portions and things, which is really where calorie control comes in. It's not like if we optimize our hormones, we just get to eat unlimited amounts of food. And you can't just like remove all energy and crash diet that I wouldn't recommend that either. That's also one of the main reasons a lot of women have hormonal issues is they're under eating and they're chronic dieting all the time. And that'll lead to down regulations and progesterone and thyroid and a lot of other hormones as well. So it's really the balance between the two and having the conversation. So earlier in the podcast, when I talked about that gray area and that middle ground, you might have a functional medicine doctor and endocrinologist talking about hormones. And then on the other side, you have someone from fitness talking about calories, but really they have to go together. And the best plans and the best approaches really figure out how to account for both. And then they work together in a relationship in concert. There's kind of a symphony there. And as all of a sudden, if one is off, it's going to create a lot of problems in terms of someone's ability to actually reach their goals. And actually, I want to go back to that, the very low calorie under eating, because I find, and you probably do too, a, a number of women who say, I can only eat a thousand calories a day or less or 1200 a day. And if I eat any more, I immediately gain weight and I have for years. So something's broken something's wrong or this is all I can do. And of course they panic. They work with somebody who's trying to get them to get into the 1500 calorie and move slowly up and they gain weight and they panic and they go back to a thousand. So let's talk about what is going on there because that is probably going to resonate for a lot of folks. Yeah. So typically what happens is oftentimes someone wants to change their body fat level or potentially lose a dress size or reduce some scale weight. And as a result, they begin to slash calories or remove calories, which the initial premise makes sense because that's how we're educated around weight loss is, hey, I have to eat less food to accomplish this. And to some extent, that's true. What people fail to account for is they don't really give themselves enough runway and they don't have an exit strategy going into that. So a lot of times what happens is people rapidly reduce calories. Then they reach a point where they're like, okay, where do I go from here? They possibly regain the weight because they didn't originally have that exit strategy. And then when they go to diet again, we're seeing essentially metabolic adaptation taking place as a result of the chronic energy restriction or chronic calorie restriction. So when we're doing that, the hormonal environment that we're creating is dieting in itself can be a stressor if it's a prolonged diet, if we're chronically dieting. If you just reduce your energy intake tomorrow. It's not a massive deal. It's just when it's going on, you're trying over and over and over again. And sometimes I've worked with women in the past where it's like they started dieting in middle school because they saw their mom dieting. And now all of a sudden it's like they're 36 years old and probably over a dozen diets have been followed over the course of their lifetime. So we have that repeated dieting behavior. We see metabolic adaptation, which essentially is we see elevations in cortisol or HPA axis function, downregulation in thyroid, and also usually downregulation in the HPG axis as well, which would be your ovarian hormone production for women or testosterone production for men. So this impacts both men and women on the chronic dieting side. 
So when we're repeatedly doing that, we're sending this stressor. Remember, metabolism is sort of monitoring these things. It's a miser of both energy and stress. So when there's less energy available, we're sending one signal already. And most people do have some stress in their lives too. So then that begins to compound. So now all of a sudden you're creating a little bit of an unfavorable environment, both in terms of overall energy expenditure, but also in terms of your biofeedback and quality of life. So then when you go to work out and do different things, maybe you're less active than you used to be, or maybe you're not sleeping quite as well. Maybe your training sessions aren't as optimal or making as many improvements because we've had these hormonal changes. So it's all about balancing the stimulus of, hey, I'm going to make some changes to my nutrition for body composition change, but not overdoing it. And if you are going to do it, you need a very clear exit strategy so that you're not putting yourself in a place where you're compromised long-term in terms of your metabolic function. And that's why I'm a big fan of some seasonality there. Having phases that are more focused on okay, I'm going to eat what I need to maintain my body weight. I'm really focused on my health. I'm focused on my exercise, my movement, all of those things. And then maybe having a season where it's like, okay, I do want to maybe lose a dress size or two. I'd like to lean out a little bit or improve my body composition. And that's okay. So in that phase, we're essentially going to reduce calorie consumption a little bit, but we still want to make sure we're sleeping enough and getting good exercise activity. And that's going to help kind of maintain the hormonal state a little bit better versus someone who just takes a crash course approach to their diet. Now, going back to that 36-year-old who's been on 12 different diets, yo-yo dieting since they were in middle school, they're listening to this right now and they're thinking, am I doomed? I obviously, you can't give specific medical advice here on the podcast, but maybe some hope, some guidance, read your book. <laughs> yeah, so definitely I think Metabolism Made Simple would be helpful as a shameless plug there and obviously have a lot of no-cost content as well on my platforms, which we can chat about later. But I think one thing to audit is really what was it about those particular diets that maybe didn't work for you? Because when I talk about having an exit strategy, what that could mean is being able to remove yourself from the diet phase and slowly add food without just completely rebounding to where you basically go back to what you were doing before and you regain a bunch of body fat. We actually even see that on, there's a few papers in the literature that covered like the biggest loser and what happens to individuals when you change their environment and then all of a sudden you put them back into their regular life, they regain a lot of the weight that they lost, even though they did all of this intense dieting and exercise and all of those things. So part of it is really looking at those kind of keystone behaviors that went into the weight loss and can you maintain those long-term? If you can't, it's not going to be sustainable. So that's a key conversation. And sometimes we do need to temporarily add food to get to a place where, okay, I can diet again successfully. But I'd also just be careful. Sometimes people sort of mismanage their intake as a result of what they think is going on with a particular diet style. So I've seen folks where, let's say they do like the whole 30 or something, but, and so like almond butter is, Whole 30, right? But if you eat half a jar, you may be <laughs> struggling to like lose that last five pounds. So we need to look at not only am I on a diet, quote unquote, but am I actually monitoring my overall energy consumption there, right? Because if I could be eating healthy foods, but if I'm not eating the right amount for my body size and activity level, that can be problematic from a metabolic perspective. And that's probably why you have maybe a little bit more body fat than what you would have originally anticipated. So sometimes we need a phase that's, if you've spent a lot of time trying to diet, sometimes it's good to focus on doing something else like building muscle or let me focus on my activity level and fueling that a bit. It doesn't mean you have to add absurd amounts of food or try to gain weight necessarily. It's just kind of bring yourself back to maybe where you would eat to maintain as opposed to trying to eat to lose all the time. Once again, that kind of comes back to that seasonality idea. So if you feel that you are in that place, I would start to think is like, did this begin to impact my overall quality of life, my energy levels, my performance? Because sometimes 
I've seen women where they begin even just eating slightly more food, but then all of a sudden they're sleeping better, better energy levels, better libido, they're training. And now because they have the energy to exercise, we're making positive improvements metabolically, maybe even maintaining or building muscle tissue, which is going to help you look a little bit leaner, even if your scale weight is staying pretty similar. So sometimes we need to kind of take a step back to take two steps forward. And a lot of times that is what happens in that situation. Other times people have followed a diet that has a label, but they weren't really truly in an energy deficit, which is that's when I was speaking of metabolic adaptation earlier, that's largely in regards to someone who is basically they are restricting or depriving themselves of a certain amount of food that they would need to otherwise maintain their weight. And when you do that for months and months and months and months or years and years and years, that's when we start to see the unfavorable changes. Doing it in the short term isn't as much of a problem. So first try to figure out kind of what camp am I in and having a little bit of a self-audit and then looking at certain behaviors and how we can kind of improve those. And that's one of the most successful sort of approaches I've seen in terms of helping women who might be in that situation who have dieted repeatedly in the past. If you are really struggling with that, that might be a good time to go get some testing done. Like if you haven't necessarily looked at your hormonal profile or just gotten basic blood work and see how things are doing and taking a look under the hood, I think that can be really helpful too, because you can start to get an idea of, okay, here's where I'm at. And sometimes those markers need to be attended to prior to some of the surface level stuff because it's a little bit better than swimming upstream. If we can get those things optimized, sometimes your weight loss efforts or fat loss efforts or muscle building efforts will actually be easier once the hormonal issues are rectified. And I will put a shameless plug here for functional medicine practitioners just because I feel, and you probably too do too, I have a conversation with patients all the time who are like, I went and got basic blood work and I was told I was normal and then you get a copy of the blood work or I get a copy of the blood work and I'm like, oh, bones. I would not have called this normal. They're normal and my normal are not the same, first of all. And then what they ran, especially in the hormonal world, they will often ask their practitioner, I'd like a full hormone workup. They'll get a red blood cell, white blood cell, maybe a glucose, lipids and told they're good. Maybe a TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. And I'm like, ah. Yeah, I was going to throw TSH out there. <laughs> it's like, that's the one hormone. That's, that's on it, there. huh? That's all you get. <laughs> The one hormone, you got TSH, and maybe yes. arguably if they pulled vitamin D, we could make an argument that that's like kind of in that category. But very rarely do we actually see a full thyroid panel. Very rarely would reproductive hormones be pulled. And this is typically if you go to a primary care physician or maybe a basic OBGYN practice for like a med management appointment or annual checkup. And so the reason we want to look at some of those other markers is so some of the sort of the cascade that I mentioned earlier that happens to women in their pursuit to improve their body composition, the way that they look and the way that they feel, is a lot of times those markers are not something you would see on your basic lab work, right? Maybe you're otherwise fairly healthy in terms of a complete blood count or metabolic panel. Your metabolic panel, while it contains a lot of really great information, there are other markers that would be more specific to your metabolic health from a total daily energy expenditure and quality of life perspective. Whereas CMP, even though it has things like glucose and things like that, we might benefit from having other information like fasting insulin and maybe A1C and going a little bit further versus just only fasted glucose. Then reproductive hormones oftentimes are left out. Perhaps individuals dealing with PCOS or something, which if we resolve that, that will also make the weight loss journey a little bit easier. 
So we really want a more complete picture. And from the metabolic adaptation perspective, if we don't have something like free T3, TSH isn't telling us the full story because if the stress in your life and the nutritional changes you've made are leading to compromised gut health or basically reduced enzymatic activity when it comes to the thyroid, we're going to see subclinical hypothyroidism in terms of your T4 to T3 conversion. So we need a bigger picture. And that's where using better diagnostic tools, better testing can be very powerful in terms of learning what's going to be best for you. Because we see folks all the time where it's like, well, my TSH is under the Western reference range of 4.5 or 5 or whatever, depending on the lab that you're using, but 4.5 is pretty common. It's like, okay, well, just because your TSH was there, well, what's happening with your free T3? And is that really optimal for you? Maybe you're at like a 3.9, but you feel your best when your TSH is like a 2.1. So just need to pay attention to those things a little bit more closely. And oftentimes I don't see things like testosterone or free testosterone pulled for women in serum labs, which is important as well, because that can play a role in terms of your energy levels, libido, and it's kind of forgotten from a women's health perspective, which is unfortunate. So Ideally, we want that full picture, as well as looking at other elements of your metabolic health, inflammatory markers, and things like that, because that can even identify risks for things like autoimmune diseases or other things that might be going on underneath the surface that are impacting how you look and feel. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now that somebody's got their labs drawn and you've mentioned modifiable lifestyle habits, I want to dive into those a little bit as just, again, giving people hope and to realize when they, when you use the word audit, when they're auditing their habits, their life, what's changed, that they can then pivot back to getting back on the healthy road of where they used to be maybe 10 or 15 years ago, let's say, depending on their age. So I kind of want to walk through the key ones for you. You've mentioned sleep. You've mentioned, obviously, diet nutrition choices. You've mentioned building muscle, exercise, or movement. And so while you've mentioned them, I really want to just hit on, if you don't have them, what do they do to you? And what do you need? To, why are they so important when it comes to how you look, how you feel, body composition, metabolism, et cetera? Yeah, when you're saying listing those in order, because we are recording this around holiday time, for those of you listening, I was kind of picturing the scene in Elf where he's like, smiling is my favorite. And so when you're saying like strength training and like nutrition and steps and sunlight and sleep, I'm like, this is just, yes, this is my jam. These are my <laughs> theme to my life. So as we're kind of discussing earlier, I would definitely say sleep strength training, nutrition, steps, sunlight. Those are kind of my big, like if I had to narrow it down to like a foundational five, I think those are a great place to start. So if you can get up at some point during your day, get outside. Ideally, if you can do it in the morning, fantastic. If you can't, just do the best you can. We're not necessarily meant to be cooped up all the time and sitting at a desk all day. So if you can get some non-exercise movement, that's fantastic. I'm kind of biased and partial because I have animals. So I'm usually taking dogs for a walk. So I'm getting outside because of that. So if you can do that, that's fantastic. Or if it's chores outside or playing with your kid, just some form of daily movement and activity doesn't have to be anything crazy, but sometimes just doing that versus being sedentary makes a big, big difference in terms of our metabolic health. Strength training could be something as basic as two to three days a week. And we see really amazing benefits that are additive with cardiovascular exercise when you combine the two, both in terms of overall longevity and just our resilience. It's also a really great buffer in terms of our stress, in terms of HPA axis resilience when we do that resistance training. So if you can do that, I would start there, even if it's just two days, very basically, it's going to be great for insulin sensitivity, meaning your body will be a bit more receptive to the food that you're eating as a result of that training because muscle is kind of a sink for glucose in that sense. So definitely would emphasize some form of movement. If you don't have time for a lot of time, ideally we're making as much time as we can, but if we're working with a time budget and restriction, I wouldn't 
make cardio like your first thing. A lot of women are just doing tons and tons and tons of cardio. Take some of that time, spend a little bit of time doing resistance training, starting with body weight exercise, and then maybe working up to using some weights or bands or machines and things like that, along with your daily walking. And then from a nutritional perspective, I look at things and this is covered a little bit more in depth in the book, but we have the seasonality aspect, right? Of like, I don't want to be dieting all the time. But then in order for something to be sustainable for us, we have to manage our appetite and maximize adherence, which means it works with both our personal preferences. And I'm also not following something where I'm constantly ravenous all the time, because then I'm more likely to fall off the wagon and be five steps behind of where I started. So we have to look at that aspect. I'm a big proponent of overall gut health and micronutrient status. So we need to maximize absorption and micronutrition, which essentially what that means is foods that are more agreeable with your body, which typically for most folks is single ingredient whole foods. So if we look at like a whole food matrix that contains vitamins and minerals, so that would be like you ate blueberries, right? That's a single ingredient and they've got lots of nutrients in there, maybe some lean proteins. And that's part of the appetite conversation is looking at things like how if we're attentively eating, eating adequate protein, all of those things can go a really long way to essentially buffering against overeating. And protein's a great tool for calorie displacement, meaning that eating it is very satiating. It's very filling, less likely to overeat when we do it. We're also taking care of and restoring the muscle tissue that we have. And there's a very high thermic effect from protein as well. So consuming that nutrient, actually, you burn quite a bit of calories in the digestive process. So Protein's absolutely fantastic there from that perspective. And then, as I mentioned, getting outside. And the reason sleep is so important is sleep is going to help us optimize our hormones, which is going to help us in that fat loss journey. Also, folks who get better sleep seem to have better insulin sensitivity, as I mentioned earlier. And we're probably going to make better food choices. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever had a crappy night's sleep and then you're trying to go through the next day, we don't make the same decisions on a poor night's sleep as we do when we're well-rested. And whether that's related to food, whether it's related to finances or relationships or anything else, we all know that we've been cranky from time to time if we don't get enough sleep. And so taking care of your sleep is going to help you make better choices day to day. And you might have the energy to exercise. You're going to have the energy to do the things you need to do because you're taking care of your body. And that starts really with sleep and getting to bed on time. So those are some of my favorites, but I feel like it's like elf picking between Christmas presents at this point. So it's very, very tricky there. I remember this, at the time of us recording this, the holidays, this is the end of conference season. So the fall is often in functional medicine land, a lot of conferences. So I've been on a lot of early, early, early flights in the morning. And I've had a lot of early morning conversations with my stomach of, you're not hungry. I mean, even though we got up at four in the morning and I'm now sitting in my airplane seat at 6.30 a.m., like we're not hungry. I don't normally eat this early, but it's always a good reminder to me of like, oh yeah, when your sleep is cut short, just as you said, when you have a crappy night's sleep, it absolutely affects the choices you make the next day, your hunger, your cravings, et cetera. Even if you have the best intentions, it's for good reasons. Maybe you're traveling somewhere super fun. You're up early for a really good reason. Your stomach doesn't know that. Your cravings don't know that. Your hormones don't know that. They don't care. <laughs> they're like, I've gotten thrown off my game and they're going to be cranky about it. Yeah. And that's where looking at those other tools, because sometimes let's say we don't get the best night's sleep. We know that can be not the best thing in terms of our insulin sensitivity and appetite management. So on those days, focusing on put the electronics down when you're eating your meal and kind of focus on the food, that attentive eating can make a big difference. Choosing those higher protein choices to help can also be good from a blood sugar regulation perspective as well. Maybe going for a short walk after meal. So it's great for postprandial glucose response to just go for a little stroll. So let's say we didn't get the best night's sleep. 
can also kind of hedge against that by using the other tools in our toolbox and lifestyle behaviors. So like, yeah, we're probably not always going to be perfect in every single category. Obviously, we strive to do the best that we can. But if your sleep's off, maybe lean on some of the other tools to help manage your appetite and also help to alleviate some of the hormonal stressors that may be present with lack of sleep, one of which is that blood sugar management. And sometimes we're in a little bit more of that kind of HP axis overdrive or sympathetic activation. So going for a walk, getting outside, doing some breathing, journaling, whatever your jam is, whether it's meditation, music, journaling, et cetera, use those other tools to help kind of bring you back to a normal state, even if you're a little bit sleep compromised, because when you have that skill to do that, you're going to be a little bit less vulnerable to those situations where it's like, oh, I only got six hours of sleep or I only got five hours of sleep. And now today's ruined. So I'm just going to eat whatever. The more we can kind of make those little daily deposits and stack smaller wins on top of each other. It's just so much easier versus starting from scratch every time of, oh, well, I didn't get the great night's sleep. So I'm going to go eat a completely different food compared to what you would normally eat for breakfast. So it's not time to like throw the baby out with the bathwater just because you mess one of these up on one day in your life. Yeah. All right. Last question. Speaking of eating, before we get into the practical, tactical final questions, what are your thoughts on fasting and intermittent fasting as part of helping, not helping with weight composition, metabolism, insulin, et cetera? So I get this question a lot, and I do think it's very context dependent. So I find that intermittent fasting, if someone needs it to manage their overall food intake, and they really like to maybe skip a meal so that they can enjoy their other meals without overeating, I think it can be great in that use case. Let's say someone is pre-diabetic, or has some issues managing blood sugar, I think time-restricted eating has some great application there, especially if it helps you not only in terms of energy and cravings, but just overall hunger and eating less throughout the day. Because ultimately, if someone's in that situation being pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic or metabolic syndrome, something usually food-related kind of got them there. And so we need to work on that. I've also had folks who make great strides with just following a plan that works for them and they eat their three meals and a snack or two a day, and they can lose weight that way. And that improves their metabolic health. But I think time-restricted eating can be great for that. In certain use cases, if you notice that eating a little bit closer to bed is impacting your sleep quality, I think having a little bit of a cutoff there in terms of improving your overall sleep, obviously a lot of Sachin Panda's work kind of goes into circadian biology and circadian eating and all of those things. But from what I've seen in practice, it's very person dependent. So if I had a woman who is highly stressed or had been dieting before or consuming less food, I don't really love consecutive daily time-restricted eating and fasting for women, especially if they're struggling with their menstrual health. If you're able to maintain a healthy regular cycle, good progesterone levels, and you don't have any symptoms that are showing that things are skewed from a hormonal perspective, I think that's okay. But a lot of women, if they're repeatedly fasting for long periods, long time windows, and they're doing it daily, I think that can be problematic from a reproductive hormone perspective. So if you were trying to conceive or hormonal optimization was very, very important to you, and you already had healthy blood sugar, I wouldn't necessarily see the need for the time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. So that would be an example of maybe two populations, one where I wouldn't go to fasting as the first thing, and then another population where fasting can be a great tool for managing their overall nutrition intake and improving metabolic markers. So it's not like a cut and dry situation. It very much depends on the person, what their goals are, and their current health status kind of going into that conversation. Perfect. Love it. Okay. Well, as this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, and I'm all about practical and tactical, what are the final like two or three things you want to leave listeners with as they walk away? 
So I think some of the biggest things from today's conversation are remembering that metabolism is malleable. And essentially, it's a single term used to define our body's adaptive physiology, which basically means that as a result of kind of the stress and energy availability conversation, our body hedges against certain threats and makes changes accordingly. So the sooner that you can work with your body and also make daily decisions that are serving your body, we can move in the right direction in terms of your metabolic health. That would be something that I think is missed in the common dialogue and conversation and everything like that. I think the second part of the conversation is understanding that it's not necessarily just calories or just hormones. It's looking at both Yes, we need to look at food quality and food quantity. And we also need to consider the hormonal conversation because if someone's not in an optimal state hormonally, that will impact exercise and nutritional decisions. And those nutritional decisions impact our hormones. And then I think probably that last part was just going through some of our Christmas favorites of practical lifestyle advice in terms of things you can do. These are really cornerstone behaviors that regardless of Different people have different preferences in terms of the nutritional styles that they want to follow. So I think you pick something that fits for you preferentially in terms of your lifestyle. There's no like, I think this is actually going to be my third thing, is there's no magic pill, there's no magic solution, no magic diet, no magic exercise routine that works for every single person. Part of it is testing things and individualizing what's going to be best for you. So based on things you followed in the past, maybe you say, hey, this didn't really work well for me. I need to titrate and adjust. But within it, you'll notice that the people who can maintain, whether it's their weight loss or their body composition or their health the longest, usually most of them have these things in common. They likely exercise, do some form of strength training or movement. If they're not doing that, they're probably doing a lot of walking or yoga or some form of low-grade physical activity if they're not doing intense exercise. They're probably managing their nutrition in some form or fashion to get good quality foods in while also eating an amount total that matches their current body size and activity level. I think that's important. Probably getting outside, getting sunlight, and also managing their sleep and stress management. So regardless of their, if they're agnostic from a nutritional perspective or they subscribe to carnivore or veganism or I'm plant-based or paleo or whole third, whatever it is, if they're successful to some degree, and this is really why I unpack a lot of these principles and metabolism made simple, is like we live in this world of fitness and nutrition where it feels like we're kind of in the matrix and we have these things marketed to us and they all have labels and fancy marketing and they're flashy. In reality, we can kind of, if we use kind of the Neo example and we look beyond that and see what's actually going on in our environment and kind of have the open source code for figuring out what's best for us, that's going to serve us over the longest time horizon versus hopping from fad diet to fad diet to fad diet, or I'm going to XYZ exercise class now, but I'm going to change. And then I go to the next thing and the next thing, the next thing, and always looking for that silver bullet versus adapting the regimen and the program to you versus trying to adapt you to the specific regimen that's being marketed to you on social media or whatever kind of latest magazine at the grocery store has to say. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. All right, Sam, tell everyone where they can find you. All the places, all the things, all the ads. Yes, yes, yes. So I definitely spend the most time on my podcast, which is Sam Miller Science on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. My Instagram handle is the same thing. So it's my full name, Sam Miller, and then the word science. So that's going to be kind of that shorter content, short form micro content versus the very long form podcast. Um, definitely do a mix of kind of graphics and video content there to help everyone in terms of learning. And a lot of that is like continuing education geared towards health professionals. But there's a lot of things that if you're in your own 
health and fitness journey, it can be adopted for yourself as well. And then there's my book, which is Metabolism Made Simple. That's You can either go to metabolismmadesimple.com or it's available on Amazon. If you're looking to check the book out, it contains a lot of the principles from today's podcast, but broken down with different sort of learning devices and acronym and ways that are easy to remember so you can apply it in your journey. But as far as everything that's just kind of a hub would be my website, which is samillerscience.com. And then going from like that social media, right? But I'm always a fan. Like if you enjoyed the podcast today, start with just some of the free content and see, hey, can this help me? Can I apply that? I'm not someone who like tries to shove my book in everybody's face. Like I feel like if you resonate with the way that I'm teaching and the way that I'm explaining things, then you'll find the other long form content valuable. But I just kind of say, start with whatever resonates with you and then kind of go into the rabbit hole from there. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. You have just dropped a ton of gems and I so appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.